Now can you hear me? Now can you hear me? Yes, thumbs up. Good. Okay. All right. Mazel tov. So the uh, the area just south of, of Machana Yehuda neighborhood was an empty lot that they turned into a market, a marketplace. And it was known as the Beit Yaakov market. Shuk Beit Yaakov, who sold stuff there? Arab merchants. Arab merchants sold their goodies there to both Jews and Arabs who were living in the regions beyond the old city wall. Well, the market grew haphazardly during the Ottoman period. And the Ottomans didn't do very much to improve the infrastructure in the 30 years that existed under their watch. They repeatedly refused to install the first two decades of the 20th century any modern drainage system or plumbing or running water or electric lights. All these improvements, which would have done a great deal of good uh, for the vendors and for the shoppers, would have to wait until after the British takeover. And so after uh, Allenby's conquest of Jerusalem in 1917 and the British military administration got their act together to, under Ronald Storrs to improve the life of the, the inhabitants of the city, one of their priorities was to make Machana Yehuda a more modern market. And they did all these infrastructure improvements. They, they put permanent stalls rather than every, uh, each vendor having to bring his little push cart and set up his own sh- set up shop and take it away when the day was over. There were permanent stalls, and there was roofing over part of the over, over the market. The market was an essentials market. You went there for your shop. There were no supermarkets in those years, so if you needed uh, fruits and vegetables, you needed stuff to cook. So you went to Machane Yehuda. The uh, the market remained basically the same for a very long period of time. And yet, there were changes that had to be made in order to make Machana Yehuda more uh, an attractive place because of security concerns. Terrorism made the place seemingly, and in fact, dangerous during the Oslo era, and of course during the Second Intifada. And so the transformation of Machana Yehuda from what had been uh, a local essentials market into a tourist attraction with nightlife and restaurants and entertainment venues was a product of uh, the decline in the market in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Now, in particular, I'll just mention July 30th, 1997 was a twin suicide bombing that killed 16 people and wounded 178. It was a very, very bad bombing in terms of loss of life and, and uh, injuries. That bombing led to something else that followed, which was one of the great blunders in the Mossad's history. And what is that? The failed assassination attempt of Khaled Mashal, the head of Hamas, uh, in Amman, Jordan. I'm thinking about next lecture of uh, history lectures might be a, possibly uh, a history of the Mossad or Israeli uh, Jewish, Israeli uh, intelligence operations and secret missions. And there are great historic successes and there are also great blunders and failures. That was one of the worst. Right, right. (laughs) Yes. 
It is true that the market opened up almost immediately thereafter. It was a, it was a, a, a matter of pride that the market should not remain closed. Okay, in April, on April 12, 2002, the other significant Machana Yehuda bombing was a female suicide bomber who killed six and wounded 104. And that bombing led to the isolation of Yasser Arafat in the Mukata and eventually Operation Defensive Shield. So there was a need to bring people back to a marketplace that had become not desolate, but was no longer attracting the kind of foot traffic it previously had. Uh, and so there was something, you know, some change needed to be done. Today, it's a very trendy place with a, a tremendous entertainment venue. 200,000 people weekly visit the Shuk. In its formative years, the good old days, Machana Yehuda was famous for holiday sales. Now, what holiday sales? In particular, four. During Yamim Norayim, chickens. Why? For Kaporos. Then, right after the Kaporos sale, what happens next? Dalad Minim, Lula Vanesra. Hanukkah, what's on sale? Donuts, Tufkaniyot. And Purim, Hamantashen. So, the, the, the Shuk has added specialties uh, that people come from far and wide to um, to partake. In the early days of the market, su- maybe surprisingly, or not so surprisingly, one of the illustrious institutions of Jerusalem had stalls in the market that they didn't operate themselves, but which they rented out for income. Who am I referring to? Yeshiva Eitz Chaim. Yeshiva Eitz Chaim, which was built eventually in 1908, not far from the marketplace, needed revenue. And one of the ways they could do it was build these stalls, rent them out on a daily or weekly or monthly basis, and collect their rental income. And so they were known as the, the Eitz Chaim stalls, the Eitz Chaim shops within uh, Machana Yehuda. Okay, so it's a, it's a lovely place. People enjoy going there, the sights, the sounds, the smells, and it's been around since the 1880s. Let's now go to Ben Yehuda Street. So <clears throat> in 1917, the British decided to move commerce out of the old city and move it further west. But the question is, where? The, the old city had not just been um, a holy basin. As to, to borrow a phrase from the Oslo era of Bill Clinton, it wasn't just a place of religious worship and religious holy places, but rather it was the focal point of the city and commercial interactions happened in the old city. People lived in the old city. There wasn't much beyond the old city until the 1860s and to the 1880s. So come the, the British era, their goal is to alleviate the pressure, demographic pressure and economic pressure on the old city and move things further west and possibly south. Well, two locations were suggested to be the new commercial center of the city. One was the Mamila. Well, the Mamila site ultimately was rejected and the Mamila would become 
a border area between 1948 and 1967. And some people liked it, although there were a lot of like, chop shops there. It was not the nicest area. Um, and then really nothing was going on there for a while after the Six-Day War until the municipality decided in the 1990s that it wanted to spruce up the place. And then they started working on the construction project, which ultimately was concluded in 2008, which is the Mamilo that we know of today, that some people love and some people uh, hate because they feel it, it destroyed the old character of that part of the city. Um, but the Mamilo was rejected. Instead, the new location for the commercial district would be the downtown triangle, the Mishulash, the triangle, or Haman's hat, because Haman has a triangular hat. So where is this downtown triangle? So it's going to be the intersections of Ben Yehuda Street, King George Street, and Jaffa Road, with the three spots in the corners of the triangle being uh, Zion Square, which will get its name, I'll explain how. Zion Square at the bottom of the hill, where Ben Yehuda Street intersects with Rokhov Yaffa, with Jaffa Street. The X intersection, where King George and Jaffa intersect. And Mashfir Junction at the top of the hill, where King George and Ben Yehuda intersect. So, this uh, triangle only could come into being because the British decided to build new roads. Jaffa Road had been around from long ago, from Ottoman times, and was the path to get from Jerusalem to the coast. It was the the Derech Yaffa, the way to to, to Jaffa. But King George Street did not exist until the British decided to build it. They didn't even pave it. They just leveled the surface. And there was a big ceremony dedicating it on December 9th, 1924 in the presence of the high commissioner, the military governor, the mayor of Jerusalem, the chief rabbis, all the dignitaries were there for the big ceremony. And the official name is King George V Avenue. King George V, not the sixth. We'll get to the difference between the fifth and the sixth shortly. Were there any Arabs? Yes, the mayor was Arab at the time, Hashishimi. Okay, so... Um, Ben Yehuda Street was named Ben Yehuda, who died at a fairly young age in 1922, the great lexicographer, the revitalizer of the Hebrew language. And the British decided to name a major uh, road in Jerusalem in uh, his memory. So, so this section of the city, this triangle, was a place for uh, for shops and entertainment, who was going there. In the, for the most, the early days, late 20s, early 30s, this was a middle class to upper middle class area. And the German Jews from Rahavia were the main customers and business owners in that district. And many of them stayed there for decades on end, up until the 70s or 80s. They came as young people escaping uh, Weimar or Hitler and stayed for a very long time. When eventually they died out or retired and closed the stores, that led to a transformation of Ben Yehuda Street and they sort of didn't, uh, the, the municipality didn't really know what to do. There was a decline at some point in the 70s and 80s uh, and the city had to 
transform it into a midrachov, a pedestrian walkway, and eliminate vehicular traffic as a way of enticing tourists and even locals to turn it into a trendy spot because it had suffered a, a significant decline. Um, in 1948, there was some thought by municipal leaders in West Jerusalem now, we're not talking about Jerusalem, but West Jerusalem after the city was split in half, to change the name of King George Street to King David But Yitzhak Ben Svi, who would go on to become the second president of the state, very much objected to that name change. Why did he object? Because King George V had been good to the Jews. How was he good to the Jews? Well, the Balfour Declaration was issued on his watch, 1917, as opposed to King George VI, who issued the White Paper in 1939. So King George VI, the father of Queen Elizabeth II, was seen in the eyes of the Zionists as uh, not exactly a friendly figure, as opposed to the mother of Prince Philip, who was a, uh, a, a righteous Gentile who saved Jews. So, none. So Ben Zvi was talking Narishkeit. However, in the mind of the movement, George the Fifth good, George the Sixth bad. So, ah, so so King David Street is where the King David Hotel is on King David Street. However, that was known as Julian's Way during the British period, and the name was changed after the British departure and Israeli independence. So they did change, they did make a King David Street, but they picked the other one further to the east. Okay, in front of the hotel. All right. Well, Zion Square. How did Zion Square get its name? Okay, it's a good name. You know, Zion, Jewish Alliance, fine. Well, the Zion Cinema was a 600-seat auditorium that was built in 1917 on that spot, on uh, Jaffa Road, right at the bottom of the hill of what would become Ben Yehuda Street. It collapsed in a snowfall in 1920. Uh, buildings in Jerusalem were not built to accommodate heavy snowfall. There was an especially uh, you know, severe one that year, and the building collapsed. It was rebuilt for plays and operas, and still functioned until uh, the, the cinema closed in 1972 and was uh, demolished in 1979. And I believe that's that particular spot is where like the 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 um, the money exchange thing is now. There's a bank, and uh, you can change your, your dollars to your shekels where the cinema used to be. It probably is. <laughs> now, uh, at the top of, of the triangle, where jo King George and Ben Yehuda get together, is the Hyatt Garden, which began as an enormous pit. There was a failed attempt to build a hotel in the 1920s and 30s. And the pit remained just an empty hole in the ground, known as Scheiber Pit. In 1946, that hole in the ground played an important role in Zionist history. If you recall, in late June 1946, the British took Operation Agatha, also known as Black Sabbath, which was what? Black Sabbath is a rock group, but in this instance, I'm talking about the mass arrest of the Zionist leadership in Eretz Yisrael, the Jewish Agency Executive and the WCO leadership, which was located in Yerushalayim, they were all incarcerated by the British authorities. Who was not arrested? Ben-Gurion, because he was out of the country. Um, and even Rabbi Maimon was arrested on Shabbos on a Friday night. 
and was put in a vehicle and he was terribly upset about Chilul Shabbos. So everybody was thrown into that pit in the ground, awaiting the deportation to uh, to a incarceration facility. Um, that area was a dump and was very messy because basically it was just uh, people would throw their trash there. The Knesset was in the Fruman House right next door. Eventually, it was turned into a park and known as Gan Hasus, the, 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 the park of the horse, the garden of the horse. And also was known as Gan Hamenorah because there was a big menorah there at one time. Um, today, there's just a public bath and, and people walk their dogs and the dogs uh, do their business on the grassy area. So it's not exactly uh, the most impressive place, but it does serve a useful purpose. Okay, so these are, are uh, two, of, two of the corners of the triangle. So we mentioned the bottom and, and Jaffa and Ben Yehuda is Zion Square. The top is uh, the Shiber Pit and the, the Gan Hasus, Gan Hamenorah. But the intersection of King George and, 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 and Jaffa Street is known as the X intersection. Why was it known as the X intersection? Because it was the first intersection in British Mandate Palestine where you would cross the street at a diagonal and there was a police officer directing traffic standing in the middle of the X on an elevated platform that would say, you go, you have green, you have red. And it was also the first intersection in West Jerusalem in the early 1950s to install a traffic light for vehicular uh, uh, traffic that uh, we're accustomed to red light, green light, you know, traffic lights were very common in the United States well before that, but in Yerushalayim, that was the very first one, the ex-intersection uh, of the Mishulash. Okay. Well, in the history of Ben Yehuda Street, the main thing to focus on is <coughs> the comfort level with which the citizenry can enjoy the downtown life. The shopping, the eating, the dining. And if the safety situation is good, then fine, people will come and they'll enjoy life. But if it's dangerous or there's been a major incident, people will shy away. So let's talk about now the 1948 bombing of Ben Yehuda. On February 22nd, 1948, three British army trucks driven by Arab irregulars and British deserters, um, entered onto the, the street, parked about halfway down the hill, in front of where today the McDonald's is. By the way, that's the only McDonald's I've ever eaten. I was very unimpressed by it. Uh, kosher McDonald's just it, it didn't get it done for me. Um, and 52 people were killed. Some say the number was much higher. For whatever reason, of all the various bombings and uh, atrocity episodes of the War of Independence, this one has tremendous ambiguity as to the casualty count. And I, I don't really know why. But at minimum, 52 were killed. Some say much higher. At minimum, 140 were injured. It's a tremendous number of people. The bomb was designed by our old nemesis, Fauzi al-Qutub, who was the Nazi-trained, SS-trained uh, leader of the Palestinian militia when it came to explosives. He's the one who prepared the bomb that destroyed the Churva, destroyed the Tiferes Yisrael in the old city, and he prepared the bomb that did tremendous damage to the Ben Yehuda Street. What was the goal of this bombing? 
the goal of this bombing was to kill the Furman or the Palmach convoy escorts who were staying at the Atlantic and Admirsky hotels. So there were hotels on the strip of Ben Yehuda and the members of the Palmach who participated in the convoys would stay there. Now, these convoys were absolutely essential. If you recall, we discussed uh, sort of the chronological history of the city. The city was starving. It was being besieged by Arab irregulars who blocked Bab al-Wad, Shar Hagai, the, uh, the valley uh, leading up to the ascent on the road to Jerusalem with, you know, bombed out trucks and rocks and, and, and uh, overturned garbage cans. And then they'd start firing on the convoys. And tremendous loss of life happened on those convoys to Jerusalem between December of 47 and uh, the declaration of statehood, or rather until the Burma Road was built. So those who would accompany the convoy, the Palmach soldiers would stay on Ben Yehuda Street, get their their summons, time to go, go back out, come back in. And so to uh, to kill many of them, would have been devastating to the cause of feeding Jerusalem, feeding Jewish Jerusalem. Okay. Well, as it turned out, the convoy had already left and they were unharmed. But many other people, innocent civilians, lost their lives. How did these uh, bombers get past the British and Jewish checkpoints? Because this area was a heavily protected area. It's the heart of Jewish Jerusalem, there were many checkpoints along the way. The answer is that the Arabs spoke fluent English and the British deserters, by being British and no one knew they were deserters, would wear uh, either their own uniforms, which would give the appearance that they had some kind of authority to be where they were, or even if they were out of uniform, were not suspected of being collaborators who would kill dozens and dozens of people. Okay, so we know the names of the people of the Brits who participated in this bombing. Eddie Brown and Peter Madison were the Brits who, who were guilty of this atrocity. Brown later claimed that the Irgun members had killed his brother a few weeks earlier, that his brother was also serving in Palestine and had died in an Irgun terror attack, and he wanted to get vengeance. Uh, Abdel Qadr Husseini, who was the head of the, of the Palestinian militia in the Jerusalem region and was the hero of the Palestinian movement, second only to the Mufti himself, who was his cousin, approved the bombing, saying it was in retaliation for an Irgun attack that had occurred three days earlier on February 19th, a bombing that took place at Ramla. So planning, this, I would think, is a very, very detailed. Yes. Only three days from, from beginning to end. I, I tend to doubt that it took three days to plan this. It probably took a lot longer. However, the, the excuse is, well, you guys engaged in an atrocity, so we're going to respond in kind. Of course, it was already pre-planned, but then again, so was the second intifada. Right? Now, uh, the Arab Higher Committee, after the bombing occurred, disavowed the bombing because it was so horrible. That's a, a shocking thing. Normally, at Arab political leadership tends to give a yashikoa to Arab militants after the militants carry out whatever attack they carry out. It's uh, a yotze min haklal, an exception to the rule that in this particular instance, it was so egregious and so horrific and so many civilians died that the Arab higher committee, hoping to curry favor with the international community, 
because remember, Jewish statehood has not been established yet. They say, oh, this was a step too far. We can't approve of this. Okay. Well, what's the Jewish response? The Irgun responded by killing nine British soldiers. The Lehi blew up a train killing 27 British soldiers. The Haganah attacked Musrara and killed seven Arabs. Now, notice the difference between Irgun and Lehi on the one hand as sort of uh, you know, right-wing terror groups going after the colonial occupier versus the Haganah taking an aggressive measure against an Arab neighborhood, trying to occupy more territory and fighting the real enemy, the Arab population. So you see that each group has its own priorities. They were not the same. One is to attack the colonial power. One is to engage in an offensive maneuver to conquer more territory. Um, <coughs> I understood, but once the British were committed to leaving, they're going to leave. The main thing is to, you know, to seize territory. Now, major, there was major damage to the buildings on Ben Yehuda Street, and people were unsafe in the heart of Jewish Jerusalem. This taught a very important lesson, that the war was no longer just on the periphery. Um, remember, in the war of 1947-48-49, if you were a Jew who lived in the faraway places, for the most part, the policy of Ben-Gurion and the, the government and the military was we do not give up on any settlement, even if it's isolated and has to fight on its own with limited resources, you don't give up. The one thing that they would concede is the evacuation of women and children from isolated outposts. Just in case it gets overrun, you limit the casualties to the, to the male fighters. Uh, however, that was on the, the periphery where people understood my life is in danger because I chose to live the far reaches of the Negev or near the Gaza or near Hebron in the Gush or uh, some random spot in the Western Galilee. However, or even in the, the far reaches of Jerusalem, like southern Jerusalem, Ramat Rachel. But if you're, if you're living and working in downtown West Jerusalem on Ben Yehuda Street, what do you think is your safety situation? You're among the lancemen. They're not going to get me here. Of all places, we're safe here. We would say in the Gemara, Kamash Malan, no, you weren't. You, you, you were in danger anywhere and everywhere. That was the, the, uh, the psychological hit that the Jews took. There is no safe space. And that was a deliberate decision by the Arab Higher Committee to accomplish that goal, to make Jews feel unsafe everywhere, even in the heart of Jewish Jerusalem. Okay. Ben-Gurion, um, in reacting politically to the event of the bombing, blamed or ascribed partial blame to the Jewish um, uh, terror groups. He said, if not for the actions of the Irgun and Lehi, this might not have happened. Is he right in that regard? Is he right? No, I don't think so at all. I think that he was just using it as an excuse to besmirch the reputation of his competitors and he can get away with it. He's the boss. Fine. So Ben, ben Yehuda Street was a very safe place during the, uh, the era of, of Little Israel, 1949 to 1967. But 
it also wasn't exactly such an attraction. Remember, who's going to Jerusalem before the Six-Day War? Not too many people. Israelis who don't live in Jerusalem don't really visit Jerusalem before the Six-Day War. It's It's a dusty half of a border town. And maybe if you have business with the government, you have a reason to go to the Knesset or a government ministry, maybe you might show up in Jerusalem or once for a field trip for school. But basically, Jerusalem was a small, small half a city and not attracting much attention. It was not until after the Six-Day War that Ben Yehuda Street uh, and the rest of the city becomes a major tourist destination. Also, travel is more common, airfare, direct flights, and so on and so forth. Um, so, as I mentioned, the uh, the high-end shops owned by the Yekis were in decline, and commerce moved to other parts of the city by the late 1970s. Where to? Where to? So it moved south and west to Malcha, to the building of, of, of shopping centers, eventually to the building of a mall in the late part of the 20th century. There are other places to do buying and selling and where there were higher-end shops. So you don't have to go to Ben Yehuda. What was left behind in Ben Yehuda? Trinket stores, Judaica places, where the tourists could go and get a, a keepsake to take home with them back to America. And those are all important things, but they don't necessarily uh, produce a, a, a lively atmosphere. Now, a, another problem that developed was security. After the Six-Day War, so Jerusalem is now a prime target for Palestinian terror, right? In 1971, a grenade was thrown at Cafe Almo. Thank God there were no injuries, but this was the first time that explosives are going off, hostile explosives are going off in post-67 Ben Yehuda Street. 1975, things get very bad a refrigerator was left in Zion Square and it was left there for a while. It was just sitting there for like an hour. And what happens when you see a, an old refrigerator on the street? You assume somebody throws it out and they're waiting for the sanitation department to pick it up. So you don't think twice about walking right past it. But what had actually happened, there was a bomb in the refrigerator and it blew up in Zion Square, killing 15 people and injuring 77. Now, killing 15 people, that's a a major, major number. In the pre-Intifada years, that was unheard of. I mean, yes, you had the Malot massacre, and of course you have Munich. um, But other than those episodes, for the most part, terror incidents involved the deaths of one, two people at most. 15 people is a tremendous number. It was July 4th, 1975. Ahmed Jabara was the, the responsible party here, and he was caught. And he spent 27 years in an Israeli jail. No, the only the death penalty has only been given out once to Eichmann. Uh, there have been plenty of targeted killings. Uh, Israel has killed many people over the years. Uh, okay, so Jabara was arrested by the Shin Bet. He was put in jail, and he was released in 2003 as a gesture to a dying Yasser Arafat. Um, so sometimes a guy gets out after a long while. Now, things continued in 1975 on a downward path. On November 13th, there was a bomb at Cafe Nave on Jaffa Road, seven dead and 45 injured. We continued to 1976, May 3rd, there was a bomb at the corner of Ben Yehuda and Ben Hillel, 33 injured. 
And this was on Yom HaZikaron. So the next day was Yom HaTzma'ut. And the mall was open. And people gathered in a nevertheless rally. Afal came. Despite the dangers and despite the injuries, we'll be open for business. So that attitude of keep Machana Yehuda open, keep Ben Yehuda open, despite what might have happened, that's the, the sort of the bravado, the, the, the pride of, uh, of the Jerusalemites. In 1979, a trash can blew up in Zion Square, killed one person. So Zion Square was a dangerous spot. You couldn't just assume that you were going to walk through there alive. Um, but things got really bad during the Oslo years. On September 4th, 1997, three Hamas suicide bombers killed five people. Um, the long-term result of that episode was that the, uh, the Oriental Institute of Chicago um, was sued in a lawsuit by the American victims because the Iranians were assumed to be the responsible parties behind this bombing, that uh, they had funded the suicide bombers. And so a $250 million judgment was ruled by a U.S. court, a federal court, against Iran. But the question is, how do you access Iranian money? Iranian money had already been seized after the fall of the Shah and the rise of the Ayatollah in 1979. So the uh, Oriental Institute of Chicago had clay uh, tablets that were collector's items, museum pieces that were invaluable. And the victims and their families sued to extract from this museum an artifact that was nominally owned by the, Republic, the Islamic Republic of Iran. Unfortunately, the United States Supreme Court eventually ruled that the tablets cannot be seized. And so the people didn't get any money. So this is one of these sad stories about how you know, bombings in Israel can result in U.S. court cases that drag on for years and years on end, multiple decades. But in the end, the victims, despite winning monetary uh, awards, walk away with nothing. Walk away with nothing. Wasn't there during the Obama-based legislation <coughs> that enabled people to sue? Yes. And Obama was against it, but it was overridden. Uh, he was against it because he felt it constrained the power of the executive to conduct foreign policy, which basically it does. He's not wrong in the abstract, but on the merits of, of the, the cases, uh, it would be nice if people would be able to collect. So in 2001, we're now into the second intifada, December 1st, Hamas, uh, two suicide bombers kill 11 injured 188. And a car bomb went off as the paramedics arrived. So this is one of those really horrible, uh, inhumane actions of one bomb goes off and Magen David Adom arrives on the scene to try to rescue and save the victims only to be themselves blown up in a secondary explosion. The Sparrow bombing of August 9th, 2001 killed 115 people injured 130, and thoroughly destroyed the corner of the triangle. The sparrow was on the corner of Jaffa and, and King George. It was totally destroyed. Eventually was replaced, replaced by a bakery, uh, the Ma'afen Bakery, which is still there to this day. and has, has excellent black and white cookies. Um, so it happens to be a very good bakery. Okay, so those were the, the sad episodes of 
the triangle of Ben Yehuda Street. But despite all of that, Ben Yehuda Street was able to recover what demographic group played a dominant role in the restoration of Ben Yehuda Street. So the truth be told, yeshiva students and seminary students overseas, mostly American, but also local Israeli. That's who you'll find primarily, you know, traipsing around in the evening, enjoying the nightlife, uh, and the kind of nightlife that is less vice-ridden than that which you'll find in other parts of the city or in Tel Aviv and other parts of the country. So it's essentially a kosher nightlife along Ben Yehuda. It's a place for uh, national religious, essentially modern Orthodox kids to hang out and have a good time. And for tourists to spend their money and be overcharged. Zion Square did have drug issues. And the, 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 the police, the Jerusalem Police Department, had a significant presence there. I wouldn't say that the issue was you know, uh, large-scale smuggling or drug running. It was more just usage. Popular usage of controlled substances at times could get out of hand. Although in recent years, I don't think so. In re- recent years, you don't, you don't see that as nearly as much. You see people playing musical instruments. Not A lot of stuff has been legalized. That's true. That's true. Okay. So uh, this uh, takes us through the story of, of Machna Yehuda and Ben Yehuda Street. I, yeah. I, I never thought of it, but I saw there's a tattoo parlor there. Yeah? yeah. You should not have tattoos. It's against the Torah. All right. So in the, in the time we have left, I want to uh, begin discussing our last topic for the season, because two weeks from now will be our last session. Um, the seven gates of the old city. Remember that the old city walls have come and gone and come back and gone again many times over. The current walls are the walls of Suleiman, built between the 1520s and 1530s. And the gates that were installed were, for the most part, built on spots where there previously were gates in earlier iterations of the city walls. But with some little changes, some gates being closed, some gates being open, some gates developing at a later time, and some little adjunct gates next to bigger ones. In the history of modern Israel, some of these gates are more important than others. Why? Because Jews live nearby, and others are fairly insignificant as far as we're concerned, because they're not near Jewish neighborhoods. And at best, they come into play during military situations, say during the 48 war, the 67 war. So we're going to, as we go around the circle, we're going to begin in the southeast corner, which is, which gate? Dung, Sharhashpot, and work our way around clockwise until we get to the shut gates on the, on the eastern side of the city, abutting the Temple Mount. Okay, so tonight, let's just focus on the Dung Gate, Shar Hashpot. How does it get its name? How does it get its name? The answer is, there had been a major garbage dump on that spot. But even more importantly than that, 
what critical site was itself a massive garbage dump for some stretch of history. Okay. Even more than the Kota. The Temple Mount itself had once been a big garbage dump. Under whose auspices? Under Christian auspices. Between Constantine's conversion to Christianity and the Islamic conquest in the seventh century, the Christian approach towards the Temple Mount had been what? The Jews once thought this was holy and it was destroyed and it's not going to be rebuilt. And the fact that it has not been rebuilt is a historical proof of the veracity of Christian doctrine. So therefore, what? Make it into a dung heap. We'll make it into a garbage dump. By contrast, the Islamic perspective on the Temple Mount had been, this was holy. We're expropriating large swaths of Judaism in our manufacturing of a new faith. So let's make this a holy spot. And if the Jews want to compete for it at a later time, it'll be a direct competition, which the Islamists will say, and we'll win. You'll lose because we're stronger. So that's the story of the Harabite, which we discussed many months ago, it being under Christian auspices, a dunghi. However, the Kotel also had been used as a place of throwing trash. Why? A way of making a mockery out of a Jewish holy place, whatever it might be. Whatever the motivation, it was a reality that you went through that gate to get to the, the filthier parts of the city. Now, as the years went on into the modern period, when the Rova Yehudi, the Jewish quarter, and by the way, the very notion of quarters itself is fallacious. Okay, you know who invented the four quarters of Jerusalem? A British cartographer in the 1840s who didn't even know what he was talking about. And he created quarters which are not quarters because the Islamic quarter, the Muslim quarter is half the city. The Christian quarter is hardly any more Christian than it is Muslim. The Armenian quarter is not a quarter at all. It's a tiny little speck. And the Jewish quarter where, uh, was not exclusively Jewish, to be honest, uh, even at that time. Okay, so in any event, to get to the Jewish quarter, did people go through the Shar Hashpot, the Dung Gate, as you might today? No. Why not? Because it's down below. And the residential areas for Jewish purposes were up the hill. What gate would you use to get to the Jewish quarter? Yeah. Either Zion Gate or, if you wanted to, Jaffa Gate and then cut across. But the Shar Hashpot really was an underutilized gate for a long time. You might use it to get to the Kotel, but remember, what was the Kotel in Ottoman and British uh, eras. It was a little alleyway, okay? And most of the people who were coming there were coming from the Jewish quarter down a staircase and through the Maghreb. So the use of the Sharash Pot was negligible. What about the archaeological garden? If you wanted to go there, well, there was no archaeological garden. There, it, it, the stuff that we see there was there, the rubble, but nobody was exactly doing anything. It was just kind of an empty wasteland. So the Sharash Pot becomes relevant in the post-67 era. Why? Convenience. 
you want you want to drive to the Kotel, you want to park a bus near the Kotel, you go right on in, and you're a few steps away from all the, the holy and sacred action. Okay, so that's the story of uh, the Sharhaj boat. Let's now move a little further over to the west. And we'll just do a Zion and then we'll stop for tonight. Zion Gate was the main entranceway for the Rova HaYehudi. Why? That's where the, that's, if you go right into the gate, you're, you're smack into the Jewish quarter. But the Zion Gate was not very easily accessible for, for those people who were coming from outside the city. Even to this day, it's a little complicated. How do you get to the top of the hill? I mean, there are roads now, thank God, it's paved, and there's even a parking lot. But it, before there were roads, it was no simple task to get in and out. What did people have to do? They'd have to go down the valley from the Montefiore section, up the hill of Mount Zion, wind your way through the various cemeteries slash churches, and Kever David, which is not really Kever David, and make your way into the gate. Then it's a gate that turns, and you're onto the road, walk down about a half a block, make a left, and you're into the Jewish quarter. Zion Gate, we've spoken much about this, was a major battle site in the War of Independence. Why was it such a major, major battle site? Because the goal was not to lose the Jewish quarter. Losing the Jewish quarter was a psychological blow to the Yishuv and to the Zionist movement. Realistically, I can't imagine how they would have saved it. I mean, yes, in theory, any battle could go either way. And if you just put the right amount of forces, maybe you get lucky. But an objective assessment of the lay of the land, there was a small Jewish population there sticking out like a sore thumb into what was hostile Arab territory, not easily accessible from the rest of the city, down the valley, up the hill, unlikely to be spared. And what? It was not spared. They lost on May 28th, 1948, and had to be exiled. What happened to these people? So we mentioned this in a previous lecture. They left, they went out Zion Gate, walked down Mount Zion, and went to exile in western Jerusalem, except for the fighters who were taken prisoners of war. And they did not go out the Zion Gate. They went out a different gate and were taken uh, to Jordan. Okay, so Zion Gate in the memory of Am Yisrael is that spot on the wall, which is pockmarked by bullets. When you go there and the tourist, the tour guides who are enthusiastic about showing what happened, they'll show you where you can see all the bullet holes and the gate itself, the metal, the metal doors uh, with, with, uh, with damage to it. And you could see up on the top of the, the, the turrets. This was, uh, it's an emotional place because it's a place of defeat. Usually in Zionist history, we're accustomed to locations where we recall some glorious victory. This is what we recall, you know, the good guys lost and a, a, a sad state of affairs. But, of course, it's all been reversed, so now it can be a, you know, a site of, of happiness. Okay, so let's stop here. And next, next time in two weeks, 
we're going to spend this, a lot of time on what's the story with Jaffa Gate. Jaffa Gate has a very interesting history, not a very Jewish one at first, uh, more eclectic. Terms of the Germans, the Turks, eventually the British, what happens inside the gate in terms of uh, embassies of foreign countries and Christian missionaries, and what was the Jewish attempt to make that area more Jewish. Then we'll circle around and get to the new gate and ask, well, why is there a new gate? When was it built? Who built it? What purpose did it serve? Then we'll come around to Damascus Gate and discuss issues of the Arab Quarter. To come around further until eventually we get to uh, back to where we started. Okay, so everyone stay tuned. Our last session will be two weeks from tonight. Take care.